Now, our God is a great planner. In fact, he is the greatest planner. He told us through the Old Testament prophets, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from the days of old what I now bring to pass. Now, when you think of God in his planning, he's not a planner like we are. For one thing, God is not impatient or impetuous. You will never find God on Black Friday fighting someone for a toy. He's not going to get pepper sprayed in the eyes because he's behaving like a child tantruming. God's never going to be behind the wheel of his car screaming at traffic because he's never late for anything. He doesn't miss an appointment. He is precise, perfect. He painstakingly plans all of the details. And another thing, God doesn't leave anything to chance. And I find that to be a very comforting thought. Your life and the circumstances of your life is not just a random roll of the dice. It is a part of God's steady, perfect plan. Proverbs 16.33 tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord, and that's why you didn't win the Powerball the last time you participated. God knows that you can't handle hundreds of millions of dollars. God is a planner. Rarely does God rush. He pays painstaking attention to details for his glory and for our good. Now think about that when it comes to the Christmas message. Last week we talked about the nature of how long it took for God to fulfill his promise. You can look at something like that and you can say, God, it took you thousands of years to send your son Jesus. We live in a culture where we don't even like to wait five seconds for a web page to load, let alone thousands of years. But think of it like this. You can marvel at the events of Christmas and marvel over the execution of God's patient, painstaking, precise, perfect plan. It was the coming of his son and the salvation of the earth. I know engaged couples who have spent months, some of them even as much as a year, planning for that special day. How much planning should go into the coming of the Savior of the world? Well, quite a bit. It's not one of those things that you just slap together and go about your business. It was meticulously planned for long ago. Well, how long ago? To get the answer to that question, you have to go way back. Back before Adam and Eve were made. Back before the first sunset rose on the earth. Back before the stars formed clusters which formed galaxies. Back, back before time even existed. And in that time, or lack thereof, there was only the Trinitarian God dwelling in perfect unity Enjoy. First Timothy or Second Timothy one nine tells us, For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Jesus Christ. Wow. We serve a wise God, a perfect God. A God who didn't let one detail fall through the cracks. A God who had set up a perfect plan in eternity past. And here's the big deal. Your life 
is a part of that perfect plan. So we're going to look at the prophecies of his coming and marvel over the prophecies of the Old Testament that outline God's prophetic program. So let's ask this question, what is prophecy? Now it's a big question and a lot of people are thinking about this question and our mind goes in all kinds of different directions. I mean, just last week, God's city, Jerusalem, came into the spotlight once again and it brought the idea of prophecy into the fore of people's mind. People are intensely interested in prophecy because prophecy tends to have something to do with the unknown future and who wouldn't want to know something about the future? Unfortunately, this fascination with what will be has led to an upsurge in interest among modern Americans, particularly millennials, into horoscopes and astrology. Two major news outlets, Market Watch and the New York Times, noted that there is an uptick in belief in these predictive spiritual practices. Carrie Paul, reporting for Market Watch, tells us that millennials are, in her words, ditching religion for witchcraft and astrology. The article begins like this. When Coco Lane, a Brooklyn-based producer, meets someone new these days, the first question that comes up in conversation isn't where do you live or what do you do, but what is your sign? The article goes to note that more than half of young adults in the U.S. believe that astrology is a science. And that's comparable to only 8% in China. There's been a 2% increase from 2011 to 16 in this practice. $2 billion annually spent on this. But why? Why are people tracking towards something that many of us would consider nonsense? One purveyor of astrology said that there's a belief vacuum. We go from work to a bar to dinner and a date with no semblance of meaning. Astrology is a way out of it, a way of putting yourself in the context of thousands of years of history in the universe. Another writer explained, most people are shell-shocked right now. They're in pain. The world is devastating. People are exhausted. And a purpose of the horoscope at that point becomes a spiritual touchstone. Now, I've said it once, and I'm going to say it a thousand times, if not a million times. People are not going to ultimately buy secularism. There is not a person out there that's going to ultimately find that secularism works. We're not a sequence of electrochemical reactions. We know deep down that we're in pain, that we're exhausted. But knowing some future facts about the shape of our life is not going to do anything to ultimately meet the deepest human felt need. And the Lord tells us something of this in the book of Isaiah. He says, use your magical charms. Use the spells you have worked at all these years. Maybe they will do you some good. Maybe they can make someone afraid of you. All the advice you have received has made you tired. Were all of your astrologers those stargazers who made predictions each month? Let them stand up and, and save you from what the future holds. But no astrological sign ever showed up and saved a life when the life was in crisis. There is not going to be any payday for looking at a cold, calculating universe and saying that that's going to have something to do with my life in a world that is otherwise devastating. You need a personal God. You need a God who knows you, a God who loves you, a God who has a plan for your life. 
A God who has planned every detail of your life for the sake of his glory and for your good. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and what will he do? He will make your path straight. So when we come down to it, some think of prophecy as a random assortment of stand in the, stab in the dark predictions, but it's not that. In fact, we should not primarily think of prophecy as a prediction. To predict something is to estimate that it will happen. And let me tell you, God doesn't estimate anything. He's not sitting in heaven wringing his hand saying, oh boy, I, I hope that that event comes about. Not at all. Let me give you a definition of biblical prophecy from one author and tell me if it sounds like God is wringing his hands. He says, please keep in mind that many of the prophecies are promises made by God. This is only natural as biblical prophecies are not really predictions like a typical human being would make. They're statements from God's spokesmen, prophets. There are more than mere predictions because there is no uncertainty about their fulfillment. The prophecies are actually divine guarantees that certain things will take place in the future, both because in his sovereignty, God is the active agent in fulfilling his promises, and because the mind of God is infinite. He, is, he exists outside of time. He sees the future as clearly as if it has already transpired. So let me give you a definition of prophecy when I came up with prophecy is revelation of God's predetermined plan. This is what brings biblical prophecy down into the realm of reason. It's not a hodgepodge patchwork of random events. It is an outline to us of God's plan, sometimes to bring judgment, sometimes to bring hope. And beautifully, as you look through the scriptures, there is this thread all throughout the Old Testament scriptures of God's first and most important promise. The promise that we talked about last week, the promise of the seed of Eve coming to destroy Satan. That first promise of Christmas. In fact, you can define it as a messianic prophecy. Prophecies that predict the future of a coming Messiah. So these are the preparations for the coming of Jesus. Remember, God's not just going to slap this thing together. He's going to take time to unroll his plan and to reveal it and to let people know that his son is coming. So let's talk about the preparations of the coming of the son. I want to consider four Old Testament prophecies. And I want you to see as we're looking through these Old Testament prophecies that Jesus came just at the right time, that he was just as God intended him to be. Let's consider preparation number one. Jesus had just the right mother. When you tend to think of who would be the, the mother of the Savior of the world, you would probably think of someone of consequence, someone with reputation. And Jesus would be born into the right station and given the right influence to begin with because if he had this kind of platform to leverage, well then, obviously, he could accomplish the greatest good for all of humanity. But that's not what God did at all, is it? God had one major criteria in the Old Testament. Well, multiple, but one major one. She would be a virgin from the line of David. 
Oh, no big deal, just a virgin giving birth, right? That happens every day. Now, when was this preparation made? Well, you have to go back before the time of Jesus all the way back to 735 B.C. Now, this is a time in Israel's history where there's two kingdoms. The prophets are speaking pronouncements of God's judgment to the people of Israel. They're imploring them to come back and to obey God. And it's falling on deaf ears. Isaiah, being one of these prophets, ministered through four kings. One of these kings is the king Ahaz. You see, the situation is dire. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, were playing some dangerous politics. They're forming a coalition together. And they want Ahaz to join forces to go up against the most powerful emperor in the world at this time, who is just rolling through nations, building a global empire. Ahaz didn't come on board, so both kings threatened to march on him and replace him with a puppet king. So what does he do? Well, he clears out all the treasure and he sends it off to the king of Assyria. Because, you know, even though it's selling out your country, at least he's going to save his, old, his own skin, right? Doesn't sound unfamiliar at all, does it? Well, God stepped in through his prophet Isaiah. And he says to him, don't put your faith in the king of Assyria. Don't expect him to come and save you from these kings. Put your faith in me. From God's vantage point, as he talks about these two nations, Syria and Israel, he he looks at them like burnt embers. So here you have Ahaz, who's looking at these forces, and he thinks they're overwhelming. And God says they're a bunch of dulled, charred pieces of wood. Nothing. So God tells Ahaz to ask for a sign But what does Ahaz do? He refuses. Because he lacks faith. And God responds with the familiar prophecy. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, there's two important things to note about this particular prophecy. Number one, you have to ask the question of Isaiah 7.14, does virgin mean virgin? There's a lot of debate in the Hebrew over this particular verse. You see, the word virgin in Hebrew is the word alma. In many instances, it can be translated as young woman. In fact, in a lot of different translations, they translate this verse as young woman. The idea goes something like this, that Isaiah didn't have virgin status in mind when he was telling this prophecy. But I've got to tell you, I think that that's a load of hogwash, and there's several reasons to consider that. One of them is the fact that I don't think Biblical scholars know the word as well as they think they do. (laughs) I'm just going to be honest there. The second is this. Remember that Septuagint that we talked about last week, that idea of the Greek being translated from the Hebrew 250 B.C., pre-Christ's coming, so there's no pre-understanding of Christ, right? Well, how did they translate the word Alma in the Greek with a Greek word Parthenos. And what does Parthenos mean? Guess what it means? Virgin. And it's the only thing it can mean. And again, we go back to that idea of Scripture interpreting Scripture, right? Matthew clearly understands Isaiah 7.14 to mean the word 
virgin. But you know, Septuagint people in Matthew, they didn't understand Hebrew, other people do. Uh, Dual meaning. So that's one thing. What does virgin mean? Now I want to talk about the nature of prophecy, dual meaning. When you read prophecy, you have to understand that prophecy means something for Isaiah's own day and time. What good would a prophecy about Jesus do Ahaz when there's two kings knocking on his door thirsty for blood? I mean, the guy's going to be worm food no matter what by the time Jesus comes. So it would mean nothing special to him, right? So immediately the prophecy meant that God would deliver Judah in the time that it would take Isaiah to marry and conceive a child and then raise that child up to the age of reason. And you see that in Isaiah chapter 8. However, certain prophecies of the Old Testament have what is called dual meaning. They mean something for the present situation, but also look forward to a better fulfillment. Edward Schweitzer, a Swiss theologian, explained that prophets often viewed the the present saving work of God and the distant future as a single act. It'd be like looking at a series of mountain ranges that appear to be a single chain. You see the first of the slopes, you see the highest peak of the, the, the mountain on down the line, but you have no idea how far the depth is in time between the two. You can think of it like this. In the moment, Isaiah understood that God was promising something very special. However, he probably didn't realize that God intended to upgrade that promise. So through Isaiah, God was promising Judah a mid-sized sedan. And Judah got that. They got the mid-sized sedan. But at the same time, God was also promising the world a deluxe convertible through his son from the same promise. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 12, this salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about his gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. Now get this. It is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Wow. And so Isaiah's prophecy pointed beyond the present situation to Jesus' coming. And Matthew understood this. He said, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The second preparation, just the right child. Just what sort of child did the Lord intend to send to humanity? We just heard there from Isaiah 7.14 that his name was Emmanuel, God with us. Now as we move forward just a couple of chapters in the book of Isaiah, we also read something similar from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What sort of child is this? Isaiah gives us some clues in this prophecy. Notice in verse 6, he uses that dual language of a child born, a son given. 
A child is born speaks to the human origin of Jesus. He was born of woman. A son given speaks to his divine origin. God sent forth his son. Notice also in verse 6 that he is called mighty God, a divine title. Everlasting Father, again a term that is typically only used of the Lord. Who is this child that God was preparing to send to the world? As you make your way through the Bible, you see this dual presentation of Jesus. Jesus is fully human. He was born like us. He lived like us. He will even die, or he died like we will die, right? So in every way that you can conceive of humanity, that was Jesus. But there's another part of the story. He is also fully divine, fully God. That, that's why miracles mark the entrance of Jesus coming to the world and the exit from the world. One preacher, preacher captures the mystery of this child from two different worlds. He says it like this. He was born of a woman. He was born of a virgin. He was just like us. He was nothing like us. He walked among us. He came from God above. He was the son of Mary. He was the only begotten son of God. He grew up in Nazareth, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is our friend. He is our savior. He is the man of all seasons. He is the sovereign Lord. Little children love him. He baffles the greatest mind. He is the son of Joseph. He is indeed the son of God. Read the Bible. See for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Why did God need to send God? I remind you of Hebrews 2.14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had given the power, who had the power of death. That's why God sent God. Preparation number three, just the right time. The timing of Jesus' coming is an amazing study in the Old Testament. One prophecy from the book of Daniel is very specific about when the Messiah would be coming. Daniel wrote these prophecies while he was in captivity in Babylon. Somewhere in the neighborhood of the year 538 B.C., he's in exile, he's been ripped from his homeland, he was marched 900 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon to serve a country that he had never known, to speak a language that he had never spoken before, to be ruled over by a king that was foreign to him. Now Daniel 9 is probably one of the most important prophetic texts that we have in all the Bible regarding God's prophetic plan for the exiles to the coming of Christ then to the tribulation. Contained within this prophecy is a prophetic countdown that begins with the release of the exiles to go build uh, Jerusalem, rebuild it. I believe that that would be found in Nehemiah 2, verse 5, when Nehemiah says, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's grave, that I might rebuild it. To the time of the coming of Christ, when he would be recognized as Messiah, which was that triumphal entry into Jerusalem of Christ in A.D. 32. 
The prophetic program clearly says that from exile to the coming of Christ, that there would be 69 weeks of seven years, which would mean 483 years between the time to that time. Now listen to what Daniel says in Daniel 9, 25 and 26. No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, 483 years. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble and after that 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Alva McLean, the founder and for 25 years the president of Grace Theological Seminary, suggests this profound point. That the time predicted from Nehemiah to Jesus' triumphal entry is accurate, not only down to the year, but down to the day. Even if McLean's wrong about this to the day point, it's accurate to the year. Think of it. Only Jesus could fulfill Daniel's prophecy in this timetable. He is the only one who met the criteria of the Messiah, was born within this short time window, for this prophecy to be fulfilled. I mean, talk about being just on time. God had patiently prepared for the coming of his son so that the world wouldn't miss him. Preparation four, just the right place. The final preparation would be the place of Jesus' birth, Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now here is a marvelous thing to consider. Joseph and Mary were not from Bethlehem. They might not have ever even been to Bethlehem before. How would God get them to Bethlehem? Luke 2, 1 and 2. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now I want you to know something very important about the world. There's always two scripts that are unrolling at the same time. There is the human script where important people are doing important things and they give themselves important titles and they're building important empires. Augustus was the title given to Octavian, the first Roman emperor. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar who rose to power through military might and political persuasion. Augustus means great or venerable. Derived from the Latin to increase. He was the most powerful man in the world so that when Augustus said, move, the world moved. Yet God's script is running at the same time. And God's not impressed with Augustus. To God, Augustus is just a piece of lint that is stuck on the pages of the scriptures. His name just briefly arises in God's revelation. God had something much greater in mind than Augustus. Luke 2, 4 through 6. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, 
The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. I mean, do you catch what Luke caught? How was God going to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem? How would he get this man who had no business going to Bethlehem to that place? And why would they go 80 miles while she is about full term? Well, God gets this man that's so full of himself that he calls himself great, who is just a piece of lint on the pages of Scripture to tell the world to move. Also that God could deliver on the painstaking details of his plan for the birth and the coming of Christ. So the question that each of us has to ask ourselves is why should I believe Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, this is what this is all boiling down to, isn't it? It's not just details that are kind of intellectual and we say, oh, that's, that's really interesting. This is all coming down to a point of decision for us. I want you to consider something. God made all of these special arrangements, yes, because Jesus was so important that he deserved the best arrangements and details in human history but also so that when people would see Jesus, there would be no mistake that he is God's chosen one. He would be in a class all of his own. He would be incomparable to messianic pretenders and to other religious figures. Now, a lot of people, when they're looking at religious figures like Muhammad and Gautama Buddha and Joseph Smith, Ronald Hubbard, and Jesus, they, they view them as sitting as equals around a table, having an equal dialogue. They're equally credible, equally reliable, equally authoritative. But God planned things so that these statements would come across as incredibly intellectually lazy when you look at all the facts on the table. You see, not only do these people not sit at the same table as Jesus, they're not even in the same universe as Jesus. Why? Well, for many reasons, but one being because God fulfilled so many prophecies in Jesus' coming. Now think of it like this. If only one or two of these prophecies happened, sure, it would be easy to chalk it up to coincidence or worse, to say that Jesus is a fraud. However, when you take the accumulation of the fulfillment together, Josh McDowell rightly observes, they form a tapestry, a cumulative case for the divine inspiration of Scripture and for the messianic credentials of Jesus. Now let's put this into something empirically that we can grab hold of. Peter Stoner and the book Science Speaks examined the mathematical probabilities that would apply to the fulfillments of all of these prophecies of Christ. What are the odds that Jesus could have randomly fulfilled some of these prophecies by coincidence? Why am I saying that he's in a universe all of his own? Well, let's consider the probability of just eight prophecies. So we've covered a couple this morning, haven't we? But eight prophecies. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, born on Daniel's timetable. John the Baptist is the forerunner, rides in Jerusalem on a donkey, betrayed by a friend, hands and feet pierced, sold for 30 pieces of silver. Now I would imagine that each and every one of you would say, yes, I've heard or I've interacted with some of those events and those are attributed to Jesus in real time in history. 
And I also placed right beside them the Old Testament references that proclaim them hundreds of years before his coming. The probability of just eight prophecies being fulfilled is a big number. It's one in 10 to the 17th power. How big of a number is that? Well, it's a million times, millions of times greater, not just a million, millions of times greater than every single person who has ever lived in human history. Now, if you wanted to visualize this number, consider it like this. Stoner calculated that this number, um, if you were to put it into silver dollars, would be enough silver dollars to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Now, let's consider this. How can we make this coincidence happen? Well, what if I took you, I blindfolded you, I took one of those coins, I marked it, I put it somewhere in the state of Texas, and I told you to walk around for hours, aimlessly, just walk. Just don't leave Texas. God bless Texas, right? And then I yell out to you and I say, stop! And pick up a coin! What are the chances that when you bend down to pick up that coin, it'll be the coin with the mark? Well, the same probability of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled by coincidence. What happens when we increase the number to 40? The number grows so big that it's equal to the number of minuscule atoms in a trillion, 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 billion universes the size of our universe. And the scriptures proclaim that hundreds of prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus' coming. I mean, have you ever thought to yourself, well, boy, I wish God would just make things plain to me. I mean, I just wish he would just tear open the heavens and, and just come right out and say, here I am, believe in me. He has. If we would just have the eyes of faith to see all of these prophecies, I mean, it doesn't get much clearer than this. The message is loud and clear. Jesus and only Jesus is the Messiah. God sent him into the world to save the world because he loved the world. I want you to take this and make it personal. Think of this life and, and our relationship with God and many of us are just waiting for something to happen. For something to kind of just strike us like an epiphany and, and now I'll start following God. And I've got to tell you, waiting can be a hard thing to do. The other day, Lexi came down the stairs and she said, Daddy, how many more days until Christmas? 20, dear. And then she frowned and she said, Oh, does that mean that tomorrow's going to be 19? I get it. Waiting's a hard thing. I remember that feeling. I remember like Christmas seemed to take an eternity. I'd lay awake all night on Christmas Eve and just wait for the morning to come. Because boy, Christmas morning was so good, wasn't it? But the wait, it was hard. But spiritually speaking, you're no longer waiting for Christmas to come. Christmas isn't 15 days from now. Christmas was 2,000 years ago. 1 John 4, 9 tells us in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then Easter came and 
this precious baby child laid his life down on the cross for you and for me. And maybe you're sitting in your seat and you're hearing me tell you about God and you're just wondering, can I know God? Can, can I have a relationship with him? And the answer is a resounding yes. Because Christmas has come and you don't have to wait. You can have right now eternal life through the Son of God. You don't have to wait to have your life radically changed by the Spirit. You can right now have a relationship with God through God the Son. So don't wait. Christmas has already come and it's a gift for you and it's free for the taking. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?